and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, reviews, views and general geekiness. I really need a better intro, don't I? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and all right, you at the back. Yes, I need a better show. Fine. Good news this week, though, although I'm nervous about it. As far as I'm aware, there isn't a single obituary that I need to do for a geeky personality that has left us in the past week. It says a lot about 2022 that I say that with a really nervous feeling in the pit of my stomach that I've probably missed something. But still, right now, I'm taking the win. So lots to talk about this evening. Yeah, we are going to talk about about Sandman, probably less than I might have intended. A little bit of stuff about other TV and film, and then we'll move on to space and stuff, I guess, because there's stuff going on in space that's quite important. But let's get it out of the way. Let's start by talking about Sandman. Okay, so we're going to talk about Sandman again, but slightly more abstractly. I I can I could do what I did last week and go into all of the characters I didn't go into depth on before, but actually that might get dull, and I don't want to be dull. So I'm going to step back and not talk for too long on Sandman this week. I, th- I think you've probably heard enough from your point. I mean, I, I could talk about this all day, but... You probably think you've heard enough of me talking about Sandman. So I will keep this short, but I do want to get in to one important thing, which I didn't talk about last week in the segment that made it to air, but I did talk about last week in the segment I managed to erase. And that's the importance of staying true to your source material when you do an adaptation, but also what that actually means. Let me explain. I am the first person, and you've heard me do it on this show. I am the first person to get really quite annoyed when people take a character that already exists in a different medium, let's say, just for the sake of argument, John Constantine, and transfer him or her to another medium, let's say film, and then use the name and maybe a couple of aspects of the character from the original medium, in this case comics, but change all the important stuff. Um, For example, let's say when you cast Keanu Reeves in that character and change everything and make what actually isn't a terrible film. It's a long way from being Keanu's best, but it's not actually as bad of a film as I think it is so long as you disassociate it from everything you know about John Constantine. If you're going to do a film that pays so little credence to the original concept, why bother? If what you've effectively done is make up new characters and completely different stories that have no relation at all to the original, why not just do that anyway and own the copyright, own the character? You've made it up anyway. Own it. That sort of thing really gets on my nerves. But so does the absolutely slavish adaptation that is meticulously the same in every detail. Those comics adaptations that are shot for shot the same taken from the comics, for example. And we'll come back to that because it's interesting in this case. That's what's the point? If I want to look at the original comic, I can read the original comic. If you're going to take it to a different medium, for that to be worth doing, you have to do something with it that only that medium can do. And you have to be prepared to change stuff within the spirit of the original. Now, this is a really fine line to walk, which I would suggest is why so many adaptations walk it so badly. This is not an easy thing to do. And that's why I want to talk about it in relation to Netflix's series, The Sandman, because I don't think I've ever seen it done better. They did change things. They changed some characters in fundamental ways. John Constantine became Joanna Constantine. And Death went from being 
a very pasty-faced goth girl to a black British woman. And Lucian went from being a very pasty-faced, elfish-looking bloke to a black British woman with pointy ears called Lucienne. They even changed the character's name because Lucienne wouldn't make sense. And actually, God bless them for not calling her Lucienne. Lucienne, I think, is rather much better. And so on, and so on, and so on. I mean, we can talk about Cain and Abel being uh, of Indian extraction. We can talk about Lucifer being played by a female actor. These are potentially quite big changes. But they were not big changes. Because what they did in each case is retain the essence of the character. I talked about this last week. Death of the Endless was very much in the show. Personality-wise, behaviour-wise, mannerisms-wise, exactly like Death of the Endless in the comics. Ditto Lucienne. Personality-wise, mannerism-wise, behaviour-wise, attitude-wise, she was exactly like her counterpart Lucien in the comics. John Dee in the comics, is quite a, a twisted, shrunken, shriveled kind of, of creature-y type person. Uh, very much like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, actually. In the TV show, he's David Thewlis. And who cares? It worked. Because the character and the motivation remained the same. Now, they could have done it absolutely faithfully. They could have found... Uh, a cute, very pale-skinned goth girl to play death. I would imagine there are enough cute, very pale-skinned goth girls out there who are reasonably good at acting, who would have jumped at the part. Would they have embodied the character as accurately and as well as Kirby Hale Baptiste? Maybe, maybe not, but actually I think not, because that's how good Hale Baptiste actually was. So, why insist on somebody who looks exactly like the comics page as long as you can make the person who doesn't look like the comics page work uh, as i said last week i listened to an interview with neil gaiman on mark maron's wtf podcast and he said that they'd taken the view when they came to casting they sat down and said look does this character need to be male do they need to be this ethnicity is this inherent in their character if it is then that's what we're casting but if it's not why would you exclude literally everybody else? If gender and ethnicity and height and all that kind of stuff don't matter, then let's just cast blind and find the best person for the job. That's what they did in the end. And look how it worked. Look how it worked. So that's the first bit. Second bit. Why change characters you know, why, why, for example, is John D just David Thewlis and not some kind of CGI Gollum-like character the way he would have had to have been had he been comics accurate? Well, actually, think about it just for a second. Had you done that, not only are you putting a huge extra cost on your special effects budget, and their special effects budget must have been quite big already, but you're also putting the audience in a position where they need to suspend their disbelief higher than they need to do. It's easy in comics. We're very accepting of what's on the comics page. You can use the drawn figure on a comics page to convey all kinds of things by the way they look. That doesn't work as well on the big screen or the small screen, on live action. Much better, if you can, to give the actor the script and say, there you go, that's who you are, act it. And let the actor take control of the character and deliver it, which is exactly what David Thewlis does with John Dee. Had he been kind of a CGI'd Gollum-like character, I'm not sure I'd have believed in him or his motivations or his certainty that he's doing the right thing quite as much as I do when I watch Thewlis. Now, if you watch that episode, uh, I think it's called 24 Hours, the episode in the diner, and compare it to the comic book that it is based on, the, the particular issue of the series that it's based on. It's, in all other respects, actually pretty much exactly the same. That change 
allows David Thewlis, who is an actor of huge renown and capability, to just do his thing. In the comics, that's the job done by the artist. That's a big statement, but generally speaking, I think I stand by it. There are cases where it's not the case. But in comics, it is the artist's job to bring the characters to life. And the artist does that however the artist does that. In this case, it was drawing a character who was a kind of a, again, a shriveled like Gollum sort of character. In live action, you give that responsibility of bringing the character to life to the actor. So why not just let the actor do it? If there's no need for CGI nonsense, don't just don't do it. It's, that's just putting another barrier between the actor's interpretation of the character and the audience. There's no need to do that. And they didn't. And I absolutely applaud their willingness to step back and say, do we need to do that? Nah, we don't, so we're not going to. But equally, you can tell that they did think about it because the quality of the show as a whole tells us that they really did think about all of these choices and how, and what, what's, what's best for the production as a whole. So now we're going to branch out from Sandman and have a look at some other TV live action adaptations that have also deviated from the comics. I mean, let's take a look at Miss Marvel, for instance. Famously, they have changed her powers. Pretty much everything else about the show is right there with the comics. But they've changed Ms. Marvel's powers. In the comics, Ms. Marvel's powers are basically quite a lot like Reed Richards. She's stretchy. She can make her arms long. She can make her hands big. She can increase her own physical size. She can also decrease her own physical size, but she very rarely does. Now, she calls this power embiggening, and that is not the power that she has in the show. In the comics, her power comes to her through her inhuman gene. I'm not going to explain the inhumans right now. I don't think if you're not into the comics, you'll ever need to know what the inhumans are ever again. There was an inhumans film. Was it a film? Was it a TV show? Didn't watch it. It looked awful, so I didn't bother with it, is the honest, honest truth. Basically, the Inhumans are a group of people descended from humans who were genetically modified by the Kree thousands of years ago, and who, if they come into contact with something called Terrigen Mist, will be mutated by their inhuman gene and develop superpowers if they survive the process. So they're basically like the X-Men, but a bit different. And as I say, in the comics, Ms. Marvel is an inhuman. In the TV show, the word inhuman is never mentioned, and her powers appear for most of the show to come from a bangle. I was going to say she's given by her grandmother. She's not. It arrives in a box of stuff from her grandmother, and she nicks it out of the box because she thinks it looks cool. And the powers are essentially the ability to generate sort of hard light, which she can use to hit things with, to build shields with, to... Uh, made platforms to stand on, uh, very much actually in the way that Sue Richards in the Fantastic Four uses force fields. And it's just occurred to me, I may be about to give some spoilers away for Ms. Marvel, which some of you may not have seen. So I am just going to blow the spoiler horn. And if you haven't seen Ms. Marvel, you might want to go, if you're, if you're listening on, on Harrogate Community Radio, you might want to go and make yourself a cup of tea for five minutes. If you are listening on the podcast feed, you might want to just fast forward about, uh, say, three or four minutes, not much more than that. OK, so if you're nipping off, enjoy your tea and we'll see you on the other side. Spoilers. Spoilers. So, yeah, Ms. Marvel, the reason I sounded the spoiler horn and sent the people who haven't seen the show away yet is because she isn't an inhuman in the Marvel Cinematic Universe at all. As far as I can tell, they really are ditching the whole inhuman concept, at least for now. I mentioned the X-Men uh, a few, a couple of minutes ago, and the X-Men are what is known in the Marvel Universe as mutants. They have a mutated gene known as the X-Gene, hence X-Men, which gives them powers. This is clearly a MacGuffin. Basically, the X-Men were created because Stanley kind of said, well, we can't keep having people exposed to radiation. It's ridiculous. We need a better excuse, a better base reason for people to have superpowers. 
Let's just say they're born that way and leave it like that. So that's basically the reason for it. Now, they have not declared openly that Kamala Khan is a mutant rather than an inhuman in the show. Except they sort of did, because her clever friend was trying to work out why she could use the bangle and other people couldn't. And he decided it was something to do with her genetics. So he had a look at it and there's something in her genetics that's different even than her close family. She has a mutated gene. Now that was expressly said by him. And as they were saying that, the music in the background, the sort of, of the, the score, the incidental music, gave a little... Which is the theme music from the 1990s X-Men cartoon, which is much beloved by anyone who saw it. And Marvel have kind of acknowledged now that, yep, they were definitely hinting that Kamala Khan as Marvel is the first mutant superhero to appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Big change. Big, big change. What's not a massive change, I don't think, are her actual powers. As far as I can see, the hard light powers come from the bangle, which is a tool and not necessarily having powers that come from her in that sense. But in a sequence where she is defending people against stuff, I don't want, I, I know I sound at the spoiler, I don't want to go too deep into it. Uh, in the sort of climactic battle, we've seen her previously use the hard light stuff to catch people. And it looks to me as though they've always been quite clear since the very first episode when she first uses powers. It's always seemed to me that inside the hard light, her physical form was changing shape. Now, that definitely happens in the climactic battle. And in the climactic battle, she actually says the word embiggen, which is the word she uses to describe her powers when they make her hands massive and stuff like that. So my headcanon at the moment, uh, my working hypothesis, my my fan theory, whatever term you like to use, is that the hard light powers are not part of her powers per se. They come from the bangle, which she can use because she has the mutated X gene. The embiggening powers that we've seen her use, she doesn't get those from the bangle. They are her superpowers as a result of her mutation. They are directly hers and unique to her. And if they go with that, that seems to me to be a perfectly sensible adaptation. And as I said, the only duty of an adaptation is to be true to the spirit of the source material and to be true enough to the source material that you haven't just made up a new character. And I think it's very fair to say that as with Sandman, Ms. Marvel, for all its differences, is very much in the spirit of the books by uh, G. Willow Wilson and Saladin Ahmed and the various artists. I can't run through all the artists, there were loads of them. So, yeah, in both cases, what you have is an adaptation that makes quite big and fairly noticeable changes to the way things were in the source material. But the choices make no difference to how it interacts with the spirit. They're not messing with the characters in any meaningful way. And I, I, as I say, I like that. Um, I do just want to address a couple of comments that people have made. I, I referred to them obliquely last week. Uh, there are people on, on the old Tinterwebs that don't like any of these changes and actually don't like Sandman as a show per se because, and I'm quoting now, it's woke and we don't want all this woke nonsense being thrust down our necks. That never used to happen. Well, I am just going to point out that Sandman is more than 30 years old now. And honestly, the comic was every bit as heavy air quotes woke as the TV show. Yes, there were just as many gay characters in the comic as there are in the TV show. Since I sounded the spoiler horn, I can point out that yes, there was indeed a trans woman in the comic 30 years ago. I can point out that yes, Desire was presented as not non-binary because I don't think that term particularly existed 30 years ago, but certainly as androgynous 
as genderless, as gender fluid, if you like. And as previously, of all the alleged wokeness in this story, that's the one that makes perfect sense. Desire is the object of desire for everyone, whatever their gender or sexual preference or anything like that. So, of course, desire has to present as different genders to different people. That just makes sense. I don't know if Sandman is woke or not. I still don't really know what woke means, except that people only ever use it when they appear to have no actual argument. But if the Sandman TV show is woke, it's only because Neil Gaiman wrote a woke story in 1989. It may not be for you. If there are people out there who don't like Sandman, I find that completely incomprehensible. But I'm prepared to accept that such people exist. And I'm prepared to accept that such people are not, in fact, bigots or racists or homophobes. Some of them will be, but I'm prepared to accept that most of them aren't. For some people, perhaps, it just comes across as a load of pretentious goth nonsense. And you know what? I'm fine with that. Until we get new seasons of both or either shows, that's my last word really on Sandman and Ms. Marvel. Unless you have something you'd like to contribute. You have an opinion, you have a theory, you have something you'd like to say. In which case, get in touch. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. You hear my voice on this show far too much. I would like it broken up by other people. If you'd like to come on the show, even if it's only for a couple of minutes, to express your views, whether they are in, in line with mine or whether they are at variance with mine, get in touch, let me know. We can maybe sort something out. But for now, we will leave that there and move on to the segments that we have so badly neglected over the last couple of weeks. I was going to talk about the score, wasn't I? The, the jingles just reminded me. Still, no time now. And honestly, I'm not that knowledgeable about music and music theory. So what I've got to say about the score, other than... Wasn't it lovely? Probably wouldn't be all that interesting to anyone. So we will move on. So, bit of a departure for our wonderful woman of science this week. Uh, our prior wonderful woman of science alumni have all been people who have left us. I'm going to go for someone who is still very much not only still alive, but still working. She's in fact my age. A little, little bit older than me, I'm just going to say. Just a little bit older than me. I'm talking about Eleanor Maguire. Eleanor Maguire is, uh, how would you describe her? She's a cognitive neuroscientist, um, or just a straight-up neuroscientist, if you prefer, uh, and also a Wellcome Trust Principal Research Fellow. So, you know, she's up there, and yet you've never heard of her. And you know why you should? Well, apart from all of the other astonishing work this woman has done in her lifetime, you know, one of those pub quiz facts that everybody knows, is that the brains, or at least the part of the brain associated with memory, is bigger in London cab drivers because they have to do the knowledge. Okay, it's one of those things that everybody knows. Do you know how we know that? Eleanor Maguire figured that out. She did the research that discovered that. So why don't we know more about this pivotal figure in neuroscience? I don't know. So let me tell you about it, then, then you will know more. Uh, she was born in Dublin, in Ireland, uh, and she studied psychology at the University College Dublin, graduating with a Bachelor of Arts in 1990, which is the year I started university. And I can only think that she must have started uni a little bit young, or they start university younger in Ireland than they do here, because she's only two years older than me. So, yeah, anyway. Uh, she then went on to the University of Wales at Swansea, uh, and studied experimental neuropsychology, graduating with a Master's of Science degree the following year, 1991. And then, because goodness knows being a postgraduate laureate is not enough for some people, she then went back to University College Dublin, where she took a PhD. This is where she first became interested in memory and all of that kind of stuff. Now, she had noted that um, there were various bits of the brain, regions of the brain, uh, that had to do with what they call episodic or autobiographical memory. Um, and that this network, this sort of network within the brain, overlaps with the network in the brain that supports navigation in space. 
because uh, it's wrong to think, I and mean, one of the things that her work has shown, it's wrong to think that there's a bit of the brain that does this and a bit of the brain that does that. There is, but everything kind of overlaps and is mixed up and jumbled together. So, you know, you don't have a a, a like a six a six centimeter square cube that does memory and a six centimeter cube in there that does spatial awareness. Everything's muddled up, but there are networks within the brain that do, that do perform distinct functions. Uh, so, Maguire's research now is looking into um, episodic memory in the wider context of general cognition or general understanding so that we can begin to understand how the mechanisms that eff effectively make us us work. Now, I really would like to tell you more about that, but I've got to be honest, my, in my research for this segment, I have understood maybe 2% of what I've read. Um, I am clearly no neuroscientist myself, but I will try to remember to put some links in the show notes to the sources that I used and then rejected because I didn't understand them in the preparation of this. Um, Maguire is, incidentally, the first recipient of an Ig Nobel Prize featured in uh, in this section. If you're unfamiliar with the Ig Nobels, they're, they're, they're an interesting award scheme. Because what they do is highlight work that seems stupid, but actually tells us something important. Uh, I think their tagline is, we made you laugh and then we made you think, something like that. And she won the Ig Nobel for Medicine in 2003 for her work demonstrating that the brains of London taxi drivers are more highly developed than those of their fellow citizens. She also is a recipient of the Cognitive Neuroscience Society Young Investor Award. Uh, in 2008, the Royal Society pre presented her with the Rosalind Franklin Award. Uh, she is a recipient of the Fieldberg Foundation Prize uh, and the Ibro Kamali Prize. And I don't know what that one is. Uh, she was also named as uh, one of 20 Europeans who have changed our lives by the European Union when it launched uh, its science and innovation initiative several years ago. And in 2011, Maguire was elected to be a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences. Uh, and she has been a fellow of the Royal Society since 2016. And there is no higher honour that British science can convey on a person than to make them an FRS. Uh, and her own home country has also honoured her in such a way. In 2017, uh, she was elected an honorary member of the Royal Irish Academy. Uh, and in July 2018, she became a fellow of the British Academy. So there you go. Uh, that is Professor Eleanor Ann Maguire. Uh, I can't tell you when she died because she hasn't, and I hope she won't for a good long time. She is still active. She is still working. She is still publishing papers. And I think it's fair to say we may not have heard the last of her. So a short wonderful woman of science this week, because it's hard to sum up somebody's entire life while they're still living it. But I think what I'm, I'd like to do is actually mention more living, working female scientists in this section, because that was the point of this segment, to point out that people can actually do this even if they're girls, that the idea that girls don't like science just because they're girls is utter, utter bunkum. So anyway, moving on, let's let's address the story that we started talking about last week and which has had some developments. I don't know whether we can say they're positive or not, but actually, in circumstances like this, any movement towards some kind of resolution to the issue has got to be seen as positive. I'm talking, of course, about Ezra Miller. So just to bring people who've not been paying attention to this story up to speed and who don't care about DC movies, and that's quite a lot of you, I know, sorry. Ezra Miller is DC's The Flash in the movies. Somebody else plays The Flash in the TV show and... A lot of people think that person should be playing the Flash in the movies too, but hey, that's not my call. Ezra Miller portrayed the Flash in the Suicide Squad, the original one. So, you know, he, they have been the Flash for a long time now. Uh, they were also the Flash in the Justice League. And they are going to be, possibly, maybe, the Flash in the forthcoming Flashpoint movie. Now, it was announced a couple of weeks ago that 
DC were looking, well, let's be honest, Warners were looking at a few options for what to do with the Flash movie. One is to release it, but have Ezra Miller nowhere near any kind of publication and, and, and promotion about it. The other is to publish and be damned and launch the thing with the full publicity junket and have Ezra Miller front and centre. And the third, which in the wake of their decision about Batgirl, seems significantly more possible than it would have done otherwise, just ditch the entire movie. Just forget about it. But why? Why would Warner be thinking of doing anything other than just launching their very expensive movie into the cinemas and making back some of their cash? And hopefully, maybe, if the movie is good, salvaging some of their reputation, which at the moment is not that great. Well, the issue is Ezra Miller. Ezra Miller has had something of a torrid time of late, I think is the nice way to put it. They have been involved in behaviour which has been violent and erratic and unpredictable, and which has led people to fear for Miller's mental state. There are also very serious criminal allegations about kidnapping and transporting minors across state lines and that sort of thing, which I don't intend to get into here. There's a court system in America to deal with stuff like that. That's not my business as a geek. My business as a geek is, do we get to see the things we want to see? And do we really want to see them if people are involved in such controversy? And that's a complicated question, which we might get into later. When I spoke about Ezra Miller last week in the context of DC just canning movies, Miller was in an undisclosed location. Uh, law enforcement were looking for them and nobody knew where they were. That has now changed. In the past week, Miller has surfaced and has made a statement in which he wants to, has apologised and I'm quoting now, to everyone that I have alarmed. Uh, he goes on to say that, um, and again, I'm quoting, having recently gone through a time of intense crisis, I now understand that I am suffering complex mental health issues and have begun ongoing treatment. I want to apologise to everyone that I have alarmed and upset with my past behaviour. I am committed to doing the necessary work to get back to a healthy, safe and productive stage in my life. And... I'm going to take that statement at face value and wish Miller uh, all good wishes for a full recovery from whatever the mental health issues are. But, but, there's a bit of me that is perhaps a little bit cynical. I want to take that statement at face value. I do. I have had mental health issues myself. I have worked with people who've had mental health issues. I know that when people are experiencing mental health issues, they're not the nicest people to be around. I know I wasn't. And you do things that are, frankly, really daft and self-destructive and dangerous and possibly destructive to other people too. Where I have an issue is it's no excuse. It's a reason. It's not an excuse. And... I don't think you can just magic away the harm you've done by apologising. I certainly don't presume to have done so. And it's just a, a, a mild feeling that that's what Miller might be doing here. I've seen some very uncharitable comment online about this. And honestly, a lot of it has made me quite sad because there's clearly still a very serious stigma around mental health issues even in the geek community. And honestly, seriously, geeks are perhaps disproportionately represented in the ranks of people suffering from mental health issues. So of all people, we should not be stigmatising anything. But I, I do understand the cynicism. Uh, one comment I, I spotted on Twitter was that, oh, look, Ezra Miller's got themselves a publicist. And yeah, yeah, that's the kind of statement a publicist might have you make if you were in Miller's shoes. I don't want that to be the case. As I say, what I want to be the case is that Miller, having suffered some issues, 
and having done some damage, I mean, there's no getting around that, they are now prepared to deal with those issues and as far as is possible, make amends, atone, make right the damage that they have done. I hope that that's what's happening. And as I say, Miller has my absolute best wishes for that. And I would say, if we take the statement of face value, it is actually genuinely quite brave. As aforementioned negative comments online would indicate, it's actually quite a big thing to come out and talk about mental health issues, particularly if you're in the public eye, particularly if your mental health issues have been at the root of really obvious public destructive behaviour that has made people judge you. Because there will always be people who come out and say, well, that's just making excuses. And do you know what? Sometimes those people are going to be right. But if you're genuine, that just makes stepping forward and saying, this is me. This is what I'm going through. Yeah, I've messed up. I'm addressing it. It makes doing that a lot harder. So I think my plea here, I'm I'm shouting into the void. I know I'm screaming into the void because none of the people that I'm talking to care. And it's not even that they're not listening. I mean, they're not listening. But even if they were, they don't care. But what I hope is that the media now just leaves Miller alone to work through their issues and get better. And of course, if the cynics are correct, and this is all a big load of performative nonsense so that they can you know, dodge consequences for their actions, well then paying them no attention, again, is probably the right way to go. But since we haven't had the boring preachy parts, I am going to throw it in just now. If you or anyone you know or you're concerned about someone you know to be experiencing any kind of issues with their mental health, please get help. And if somebody is talking to you and expressing difficulties that they're experiencing, please take them seriously. Don't laugh it off. And can we be a little bit less gung-ho about telling people to man up? Not only is that a really unhelpful phrase, it's a really unhelpful attitude. If people are struggling, they're struggling. Maybe you wouldn't be struggling with those circumstances, but they are. And when you when you dismiss things like that, you make it so much less likely that your friends will come to you. And sometimes your friends coming to you can save their life. As I said, geeks of all people should be supportive of people experiencing mental ill health. And we've got to bust this stigma and this mocking of people who act out when they're not well. There are organisations who can help you if you do need help. In a crisis, you can always call the Samaritans. Just pick up the phone, call 116-123. Or just talk to a mate. But talk to someone. Take it from one who knows. I was ill for quite a long time before I ever accepted I had a problem. That cost me a very good job, quite a good career, and quite a lot of friends. And it was unnecessary. So don't be me. I'm fine now, by the way. Don't worry. I'm absolutely fine now. But don't be me. If you think you've got a problem, please talk to someone. But if your friends talk to you, listen and take them seriously. Here endeth the boring preachy part. Wow. Okay. Uh, That was actually unplanned and off the cuff. I'm going to leave it in. But that was not in the script. Anyway, moving, moving on very swiftly to happier, happier, happier things. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in a while, it is time for my favourite jingle. Okay, very quickly, a very quick, very undetailed James Webb Space Telescope update. Wow. That's about it, really. It's impossible now to talk about the JWST without hyperbole. Forget the guy's name, Nafta, he wasn't that nice. But the JWST itself 
is an astounding instrument which is doing astonishing work. I mean, seriously, we've you, you will have seen if you unless you've been living under a rock, you will have seen on the news or in, on the internet some of the images that the JWST has already taken. Now, it's not just that it's doing this work; it's that it got to where it's going so perfectly, and then it got hit by a micrometeorite that did a reasonable amount of damage and which has not affected the work at all. They were expecting that this thing was going to get hit by stuff. There's stuff out there. It was unfortunate it got hit by stuff as early as it did. I mean, it literally been on station a couple of weeks. But that it survived with almost no discernible loss of any kind of resolution or ability, that is astounding. And it's a real, a real testament to the work of the people at JPL and at NASA who have built this extraordinary instrument. And that's it, really. That's that's my JWST update for this week. It's just what an astounding machine. I love it when NASA gets it right, and they really, really have. Speaking of NASA getting it right, it's time to talk about Artemis 1. Because we're going back to the moon, people. We are going back to the moon. I am recording this on the 18th of August, 2022. If you're listening to this on the day it drops, either in the primary broadcast on Harrogate Community Radio or on the podcast feed, you are listening to this on Thursday, 18th of August, 2022. And in just 11 days time, if everything goes according to plan, the Artemis 1 mission will be a go. She is scheduled to launch on August the 29th, 2022, at 8.33am. It's going to be a three-week mission, and it's designed as a proof of concept, a proof of technology, if you like. Not really proof of concept. We know you can go and do a, a figure of eight around the moon. Apollo 8 did it. But this is going to be the first time since Apollo 17 left the moon that anything human rated will be sent around the moon. It's the furthest a human rated spacecraft will have been since 1972. I know, it seems it seems absurd that we never went back, but we never did. So why we didn't go back is probably a subject for an entirely different podcast. But what is Artemis 1 all about? Well, the Artemis mission is NASA's return to the moon. Artemis 1 is the first in space mission. It will be uncrewed. There will be no people because NASA is not as insane as it used to be. Uh, do you know the first time they launched a Saturn V rocket with people on it, it went, it sent a capsule around the moon. That was Apollo 8. I know. They're not doing that this time. The first time they're launching their new rocket, the Space Launch System or SLS, which is comparable to the Saturn V in size, it's slightly bigger. Uh, but not comparable in power because it's much more powerful than the Saturn V. Given how powerful the Saturn V was, that's remarkable. Anyway, Artemis 1 is what NASA is calling the first integrated test of NASA's deep space exploration systems, which is NASA hyperbole for saying, yeah, we're taking an Orion spacecraft, which looks a lot like an Apollo spacecraft, only bigger, and they are sending it around the moon. The point of this mission is to demonstrate that the Orion spacecraft and the Space Launch System work and are safe. Because if they are, then we can start sending people to the moon. We can't do that yet. We don't actually have a human-rated spacecraft capable of doing that yet until we've proved the Orion can do it. All of the Apollo equipment is not only obsolete, but even if you wanted to just redo Apollo, you couldn't because all the people who worked on Apollo are long retired. Many of them have died of old age and nobody knows how to do it. It's as simple as that. Nobody knows how to build Apollo equipment anymore. I know. I find that inconceivable as well, but it is true. Right now. As as I am talking to you, 
the Space Launch System, the very first of its name, is standing at Launchpad 39B, the historic NASA Launchpad, which has sent important shuttle missions and important Apollo missions into space prior to this, and will shortly send the first space launch system and Orion module into space beyond low Earth orbit. That's the first time human-rated stuff has gone below uh, low Earth orbit since 1972. I know I keep saying that, but it's worth saying. And around the moon. Now, they're not just doing that. It's expensive chucking stuff into space. And so when you do it, you try and do more than one thing. So the Orion capsule that will be going around the moon and coming back is also carrying a whole bunch of science experiments uh, to gather data and to learn stuff so that we, we have more knowledge about what the moon is like before we send people again. So there's a lot going to be going on. I'm not going to go into detail on that because we'd be here all day. There's an awful lot of experimentation. I'm, I'm planning an actual hour-long special just on Artemis, and we'll put all that detail and stuff in there. But mark your calendars, folks. The full dress rehearsal has been done. The rocket is on the launch pad. Literally, all that needs to happen is for someone to light the blue touch paper and stand well back. We will, of course, bring you up to date next week when launch will be just days away. Unless, of course, something goes wrong. Uh, either way, we will update you then. But for now, there's loads more happening in space, but we don't have time for it. So we will move on. Okay, so let's talk about comics. I've got a few to recommend. Uh, I mentioned price rises last week. They are happening. They're not happening until September. More about that in the future, probably. Uh, if you are unclear about our pricing structure, just go to www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Other comic shops will do things differently. If you have a local comic shop that's not us, please support them. And please check out either their website or their social media to find out what they're doing, if anything, about the price hike. Some of the larger comic stores are much more able to absorb price hikes than the little guys like us. So, you know, check with your local comic store and please support your local comic store and your local independent bookstore wherever and whenever you can. Is that the second boring? Am I being boring and preachy again? Sorry. Not boring and not preachy is our first recommendation of this week. How about that for a segue? And that is Barbaric Axe to Grind issue one. Now, I wasn't doing comics recommendations when the first season of Barbaric came out, I don't think. So imagine, if you will, a barbarian hero, much like Conan, only hairier. He's got a very big beard. Anyway, he's a barbarian called Owen. And what he wants to be is a big, scary, axe-wielding maniac who goes through battlefields and wades through the blood of his enemies. And he kind of is that a bit. But... He's been cursed. And he's got a really inconvenient curse for someone as devoted to mayhem and destruction as he is. Because uh, his curse is that if an innocent person needs help, he has to help them. He has no choice. And that's occasionally inconvenient. Not only that, he carries a magic axe, because of course he does. His axe, rather imaginatively named Axe, is drunk or gets drunk on blood, like really silly, giggly drunk, which in the middle of a battle is occasionally hilarious. You don't need to have read the first run of Barbaric in order to enjoy the second, I can assure you. And you will enjoy the second run of Barbaric, because it's amazingly funny. It's great. It's not, it's an action comedy, I suppose, is what you'd call it. Uh, it is laugh out loud funny in parts, but the peril is real, the stakes are high, uh, you get a sense that, you know, this is dangerous and you feel the adrenaline. It's brilliantly written uh, by Michael Moresi, who has been on the show back in the uh, Geeks at the Gates days. Uh, illustrated by Nathan Gooden, uh, coloured by Addison Duke, lettered by Jim Campbell. 
and it is a thing of utter, utter brilliance. If you like fantasy and sword and sorcery and that kind of stuff, it's for you. It really, really is. If you just like a good action comedy, also for you. Honestly, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's out from Vault Comics this week. Uh, it is £4.50 at Destination Venus right now. And it's sold out at publisher level. So I think we may have a couple of copies left. Uh, this is definitely another reason for pre-ordering, you see. People who pre-ordered this, they're definitely getting their copy. Everybody else, you're taking your chances. Uh, a second print is on the way, and I don't normally bother with second prints. I will probably be getting second prints in of this because it's just that good. Okay, moving on. Um, to True Cult, out from IDW this week, it is um, written by Scott Brown Wilson um, with art by Liana Kangas. Uh, they are co-creators. Uh, Kangas's art is coloured by uh, Gab Contreras and the letters are by DC Hopkins. And what we have is a bit of a loser, a bit of a deadbeat. A guy who's been flipping burgers for 15 years. But while he's been flipping burgers and, you know, having no life and no particular future and no real ambition, he's also been paying attention. And he knows when the money and the people move around the strip mall where he works. And he is planning a heist. But it's not going to be as easy as that. Inside knowledge is all very well. But when cults get involved, things get complicated. I really enjoyed this. I, I, I'm being deliberately vague about what happens because some of the reveals are just quite fun. And uh, I really enjoyed the first issue. And it, it, it follows in many ways the standard trajectory of a heist story in that guy comes up with a heist, gets his people together, they do the heist, and then something bizarre goes wrong and they spend the rest of the story dealing with it. It's it's the thing that goes wrong that is really going to drive this story, I think. And I just really enjoy it. It's just a really original take. Uh, so that's uh, out this week from IDW Comics, uh, 350 from Destination Venus. Other comic shops may vary. Please, again, support your local comic stop and independent bookshop. Thank you. And we are rapidly running out of time. I do want to segue now into... Geek Community Notice Board. We only have one announcement. Actually, no, we don't. We've got a couple of announcements. I'm going to get you to to go over to the social media of The Secret Lair because they have got various uh, role-playing game activities going on throughout the week. And some of you might want to jump on board that. If you want to get into tabletop role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, the Secret Lair is really a great place to go and meet people who can show you the ropes, get you involved, and just make you comfortable on your first campaign. If you are a seasoned campaigner at D&D, then you would be most welcome to. So check out what's going on at The Secret Lair. I'm not going to run through their entire uh, thing. I'm going to encourage you to get in touch with them directly through their social media. Uh, the Secret Lair on Facebook and Instagram, and links in the show notes to that. But the big thing for the Geek Community Notice Board this week is the Geek Pub Quiz. This Sunday, that's Sunday the 21st of August 2022, 7 o'clock for 7.30 at Major Tom's Social, the Geek Pub Quiz, ladies and gentlemen, is 10 years old. Can you imagine? Ten years ago, in 2012, Steve and Helen first stood up. I think they were in the retro bar at that time and chaired the first Geek Pub quiz. From then, it's gone from strength to strength. Obviously, the last two years have been a little bit rocky for reasons we all understand. But ten years, they have been providing the best geeky night out for people in Harrogate every single month apart from when they couldn't because of lockdown 
for all of that decade. They have been supporting and promoting geeky businesses around Harrogate and elsewhere. And I just want to congratulate them. I want to thank them, too, for the support they've given Destination Venus. But I want to thank I want to congratulate them for making this astounding achievement, for having the consistency and, frankly, the subject knowledge to to maintain this for a decade. And Steve and Helen and their glamorous assistant, Chris, are all just really nice people who work very hard to give everyone else a really good night out. And the Geek Pub Quiz is a fantastic night out. So if you are not doing anything else this Sunday evening, and honestly, who's got plans for a Sunday evening? Get yourself down to Major Tom's and revel in the celebrations, because it's going to be great. I hope I will see you there. Okay, that is just about it. Uh, A very quick reminder, because I meant to mention this when I talked about TV earlier. If you are listening to this on the day that it drops, then She-Hulk just became available on Disney+. Plus. If you're listening to this after the day that it drops, then She-Hulk is already available on Disney+. Plus. You can expect my reaction to She-Hulk next week. I've got to say, from what I've seen of the trailers, I am not, not, I'm not even cautiously optimistic. I'm actually just damn well looking forward to it. I've always liked the character of She-Hulk. Uh, I, I think I first came across her in the West Coast Avengers in the 80s. Frankly, I always preferred her to, to Banner Hawk because her stories were always told with a bit more wit, I think. I, yeah, I think that's always been what it is. It, there's a, there's a, it's not jokey. It's not silly necessarily, although it has been in the past. But there's always been a wit about the character uh, that is, is so much more interesting than just Hulk smash. Also, the fact that uh, she's a lawyer gives an edge. Uh, an angle, if you like, to the storytelling, which you're just never going to get with with Banner Hulk. The scientists are all very interesting and all, but it's not as dramatic, really. And they've always leaned slightly into the mad scientist idea with Banner Hulk, and I've never really liked that. So yeah, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, uh, will be available to you if you are able to hear these words. So you might want to check that out, and we'll be talking about that next week uh, next week we also will have more news on the Artemis 1 mission and I'm, I'm reaching out to a couple of contacts from my Rocketman days so I may actually be able to get some really juicy stuff on that don't hold your breath they haven't returned my phone calls yet next week I'm also planning to reintroduce the what's up section because we're starting to get sort of darker nights now and we're also starting to get some planets that are visible in an evening and so you know backyard astronomy is getting a lot more interesting in the next few weeks so you know we'll we'll bring it to speed with all of that as well so until then i hope you all have an exceptionally geeky week whatever it is you're doing be kind to yourself uh i'm just going to mention it again the samaritans 116 one, two, three. If you need someone to talk to and you haven't got anyone else, they are always there. Links in the show notes, incidentally, over at www.destinationvenus.co.uk to other mental health organisations who can probably help you too. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, and I really do mean it. And stay geeky. Have yourselves an absolutely spectacularly good week. Hope to see you with the Geek Pub Quiz on Sunday. For now. We are going to sign off with one last blast from the wonderful score to the Sandman. You take care. Sleep well. Really?